0: Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, or on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash thedirectorscut. Coming off of our three-part series of the Meet the Nominees Feature Film Symposium, we have one more treat from awards season. Today's episode of The Director's Cut is devoted to our Meet the Nominees Documentary Symposium. Like the Feature Film Symposium, the annual event is a round-table discussion with the directors nominated for the Guild's Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Documentary. On February 3rd, Otto Bell, the director of The Eagle Huntress, Ezra Edelman, the director of O.J. Made in America, Josh Kriegman, the co-director of Wiener, and Roger Ross Williams, the director of Life Animated, all gathered at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles to discuss the making of their films with moderator James Moll. Nominees Raoul Peck, the director of I Am Not Your Negro, and Elise Steinberg, the co-director of Wiener, were not available to participate. So please enjoy our Meet the Nominees documentary special and listen to the panelists discuss the unique challenges they face as documentary filmmakers. Highlights include Mr. Edelman speaking about the difficulty of editing more than 800 hours of footage down to 7 hours and 47 minutes, and Mr. Kriegman talking about the exclusive level of access he had to former New York Congressman Anthony Weiner.
1: Welcome back, everyone, or if you're here for the first time, welcome. All right, so let's uh, jump in. There's so much to talk about, um, and we don't have a lot of time, so... uh, Let's talk about Wiener. <laughs> All
2: right,
3: let's do it.
1: <laughs> Who are these people? <laughs> you know, the, the ironic thing with that laughter is that uh, when I ask that question, I'm not just talking about the name of the gentleman in the film, I'm talking about uh, other things as well. I'm sure you came across that when you were doing the film, the uh, the irony of the name <laughs> from time to time.
2: Oh, yeah. No, it, it uh, never really gets old. Yeah. <laughs> Although, you know, Anthony liked to joke. He heard the last original Wiener joke in the third grade. So, you know. I mean, there's a lot in the film. I'm sure it must have happened with the crew while you were,
1: while you were filming. Um, but you had a really unique character. I mean... I'm not guessing, I guess, when I speak for everyone on this panel, we're all watching your film and thinking, wow, why isn't everyone I profile that open to being photographed, right? To being interviewed. Is that what you expected from the beginning? Because you had known
2: Anthony Weiner before this, right? You know, I actually had met him working in politics. Uh, I, I had worked as his chief of staff for a couple of years when he was in Congress prior to getting into filmmaking. And so he and I had stayed in touch. This was years before uh, the, se- the sexting scandal and his resignation. So he and I had been in touch for many years. And then after he resigned, I had moved into filmmaking at that point and I pitched him on this idea of, of doing a documentary. And it was actually a, a two-year conversation going back and forth with him to uh, figure out if he might be comfortable letting us tell his story. And then when he decided to run for mayor, he, uh, he let us in. His story of running for mayor well, yeah, but also, you know, he had, he had uh, been through this scandal and resigned from Congress, and, you know, part of the idea from the very beginning was to figure out a way to, to tell his story in a way that, you know, gets beyond kind of the punchline version um, and uh, try to go a little bit deeper. But, yeah, but we ended up, of course, being embedded in the, in the mayoral campaign and following that through in 2013. Yeah, it was interesting to hear there was a line
1: in the film where he's talking to you, and he says, isn't the fly on the wall supposed to be
2: on the wall? So it's an interesting relationship that the,
1: the two of you had. You basically had all access.
2: Yeah, I mean, he was, you know, he's a very open guy, and he has a, um, you know, a complicated relationship with the camera. Uh, and that was, that was part of it. Um, Not just your camera. Yeah, no, I, you know, I mean, he, he, he was very open, and he was very, um, you know, I mean, it's, there were definitely things he didn't want us to film, and there were boundaries that he set that we respected throughout. Um, but he was, uh, he, was, he was very open and, and part of the, you know, there's this question at the, at the end of the film why he would let us film this, mm-hmm. uh, which I actually asked him directly in the film itself. Um, and it, 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 he really, I think, wanted a, a different version of his story told than the one that, that played out in the headlines and the New York Post and the puns and everything else. And I think there was a sense that that might happen through a, through a documentary. Was it a different sense of his story that was told? Uh, I, I mean, I, 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 I think so. I mean, I leave it sort of to the audience to, to decide. I mean, part of the, one of the wonderful things about this film and, and the way it's been received in the last year is that people have a wide range of reactions to this movie. I mean, we've, we, we had a, a one couple that we knew who watched it and then went out to dinner and fought the whole time, um, <laughs> which, you know, I felt bad for them, but it, it's like sort of gratifying as a filmmaker to know that you're, um, you know, playing in shades of gray as opposed to black and white. Well, uh, obviously Anthony
1: Weiner was a fascinating subject for a film and all four of you had fascinating subjects for the film. O.J. Simpson, I mean... I didn't
4: have the same access.
1: (laughs) You did not have the same (laughs) access, but there was a potential for
4: access. Was there? Do you know Uh, something I don't know? I don't know. Tell tell us. Uh, There was no potential for access. (laughs) That's it. He, he's he's incarcerated in Nevada. And they don't
1: allow... They wouldn't allow him to speak.
4: Uh, technically, um, according to state law, you are allowed to interview inmates in prison, but um, he has not done any interviews since he's been in prison, and I didn't think he was going to break his silence for us, and he didn't. But you tried. I tried. Yeah. All
1: right, well, tell us... Uh, your film is... Seven and a hours, half hours and forty-seven minutes. And when you set out to it make this film by like that,
4: <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know what it it does. I'm watching that film and uh, all the way through without. And I think a lot of people. I speak for a lot of people. Um, but how do you come to make a seven-hour and however many minutes film?
4: Uh, through uh, a lot of hard work, I guess. I mean, we were commissioned to make a film that was um, commissioned to be a long, epic film. It was supposed to be a short film, about five hours. And we <laughs> we started working, and um, we, you know, you know the thing about making a documentary, in any form that any of us made a documentary, you don't know exactly what access you're going to get to subjects, in this case, um, interview subjects. You don't know the footage you're going to be able to locate. And so, you know, in, in planning out the film, you know, we found, I, you know, I, I found an architecture through which I was hoping to tell the story, but I had no idea um, who was out there to help me tell this story and have to fill in this narrative. And we were overwhelmingly fortunate that there were so many people that trusted us to sit in and be interviewed and, and talk about this very fraught man, but also about um, this city that we are sitting in right now. And you know, what has happened over the past 50 years and this story about, you know, the police department and the black community in this very fraught dynamic. And, you know, looking back now, it's, I, I'm very grateful that people did trust us to, you know, participate in a story that has, for many of them, you know, caused them a lot of pain throughout, throughout the years.
1: And you're, it's, well, I, we're fortunate that you were given an opportunity to make a film on such an epic scale. But I'll tell you, you've kind of ruined it for the rest of us because I can't tell you how many meetings I've gone into with network executives that are talking about me wanting to do a project for them and they say, have you seen the OJ movie? That's what we want. Can you do the OJ Have you guys seen this? Had this <laughs> Everybody talks about the OJ movie, so thank you and uh, Sorry. <laughs> no, it's great. I love the film. Um, Otto. Also, speaking of characters, you had a fascinating character. She was what, thir- thirteen when 13? you were profiling? Yep. Thirteen years old, um, and again, with speaking about access or following somebody who's a unique character, uh, she doesn't strike me as someone that it was particularly easy to follow and capture naturally. But who who, who knows? What what was it like uh, profiling her or finding her to begin with?
5: <laughs> finding it was its was its own thing. Um. We filmed in the, in the most remote part of the least populated country in the world. Um, so there are no roads and, and they're nomadic. So you take a little cigar tube of a twin propeller plane up to her region, there's about two flights a week. And then you get out and then you gotta find them. So literally you, know, you drive and then you, you find another soul and they say, oh, I think they're over that mountain or whatever. And you, you rumble on for another couple of hours. Um, but, you know, when we did find them, the, no, the family were remarkably open to being filmed. Um, they're somewhat used to having, I mean, they're not I don't. They're not uncontacted or anything. They, you know, they, um, they're used to having the odd kind of tourist, you know, intrepid, adventurous tourist coming in. And and um taking an interest in their lives and oftentimes those people are are amateur photographers, you know, and they'll, they'll they'll stay for a night or two and take some photos. I just I just stayed for longer.
2: <laughs>
5: yeah.
1: Well let's uh let's take a look at a scene from your film. Um it is uh I don't know what it is. Do you wanna set up do you know what the clip is? Uh if if it's the one I picked I th- which imagine I think it's hope the it one is. you picked.
5: <laughs>
1: um It's the one with OJ in it. This yeah <laughs> Yeah. I got the he access.
5: Was he was an the incredible access. eagle hunter. <laughs> yeah. He's pretty good. I mean, he's a sportsman, you know. It's natural. Um, He'd <laughs> turn his hand to anything. Um, but no, this this bit. Um, I like this bit. Um, that's why I picked it. This bit is a. Uh, it's just a bit of a pause in the middle of the film. Um, you know, it, it's um, it's really where you see the technology come into play. You know, I threw, I made this film with my life savings for about a hundred thousand dollars, but we really threw the kitchen sink at it. You know, a lot of drones, a lot of cranes, um, and modern technology is is what allowed me to 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 film the truth, but film it beautifully. Um, and um, I just like this bit in the film because it, it, it's there's not too much. Uh, to read, there's not. It, it's um, it's just a moment where the audience can breathe a little bit and take in take in what I found in Mongolia, which is just this vast, oceanic kind of landscape.
1: All right. Well, let's let's yeah. breathe. Let's take breathe a, a little bit and yeah. have a look at a scene from yeah. the Eagle Huntress. I wish you. I wish we could show you the whole film. This is a beautiful beautiful film and we didn't get a chance in this clip to see much of the uh, uh, the storyline our lead, the young yeah. girl um, but it's beautifully photographed and uh, considering where you were in the world, I'm assuming you didn't drive home every night and go to the four seasons. <laughs> no we, we, we lived in,
5: uh, we lived in that girl those circular houses that you saw we just slept with them like ducks in a row. So there's no real electricity, um, there's no running water or anything like that.
1: And you mentioned drones, look like yeah, a lot of batteries. looks like a crane, yeah. you look like, it, I don't know if... Uh, yeah, well I had a crew of
5: three and um, my cameraman, he's a great inventor, he, he built me a, a crane that was sort of nine meters long but folds away into a, a snowboard bag, you know. We, we, but batteries were a problem. We, um, we had a little petrol generator <laughs> um, that, uh, that um, you know, we would use to charge things at night. Um, but then, you know, you run out of petrol. And um, so we started hoovering out the van with a hose pipe. Oh my gosh. But then the problem becomes you're so far away from the petrol station, the gas station, that you can't – you have to decide, are we going to film more or are we going to get back to get to get more petrol? I mean it was yeah, it was it was a lot of
1: fun. I was gonna ask you about <laughs> the size of the crew because it does you would think in watching the film that you had a you know, a very large crew. Yeah. So Thank uh you. yeah, yeah so no, there's three of us. And
5: yeah.
1: am I correct this was your first film? <laughs> it's my first film, yeah. Wow. <laughs> Congratulations. Because it's 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 cinema verite. It's following this young girl through her journey. You couldn't possibly have known that every step of the story was going to take place the way it did. No, I, d- I didn't know if it was going to be a, a five-minute
5: film, if it was going to be a, like a little package or a half-hour special or an hour, but things kept, kept happening to her.
1: And it's verite, but beautiful, but beautifully shot. So uh, congratulations. Oh, sure. it's, a, it's a beautiful film. <laughs> and speaking of verite, Roger. You thought you yes. were going to get away without uh, mm-hmm. out there. He said, "I'm not. I'm not going to talk."
3: No, I'm not going to say <laughs> anything. I was hoping not to say anything.
1: <laughs> <Damn>. Life Animated. <laughs> you have made millions of people cry, including me. <laughs> I hope they. And laugh. I'll never admit it. So. I hope they
3: laughed as well.
1: Absolutely laughed, and they're and crying not tears of sadness and not coming from a bad place, but. What's a what's a word to describe um, compassion? Compassion, empathy, empathy, triumph. triumph. Beautiful, three excellent words to describe. That's what it's so uplifting. And it was now when you came into this film, what were you getting yourself into? Did you know? Because again, you didn't necessarily know how the story was going to unfold.
3: Well, there was a book. So um, Owen's father, Ron Suskind, is a very well-known Pulitzer Prize-winning author, and he had written a book, but he writes big political books about, you know, terrorism and the financial crisis, and this was his first personal, you know, really personal. So I had that, but I wasn't didn't want to. I'm not going to like, you know, rehash a book. So it was really about following Owen um, in his life as he becomes independent. Um, but for me, it was really about giving him a voice. Um, Owen and so many people like him don't have a voice in this world and in, in America, especially um, now in this political climate, and, where, and and it was really about giving him a voice and really telling the story from his point of view.
1: I was surprised at how comfortable he seemed with you, a stranger, uh, presumably as an audio person, a uh, camera operator, a crew coming in and being a part, becoming a part of his life the way you did.
3: Yeah, there, there was a crew of three of us. Um, you know, Owen lives in the land of the lost sidekicks. He lives in his head, so he was a perfect documentary subject because he never looked at the camera. He was, all, and it was great. And he also, the other, <laughs> the other problem is that Owen also, he can't tell a lie, he can't do, so he 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 has this r- real honesty about himself. So if I would say, oh, and I didn't get the shot. You have to walk through the door again," he'd be like, "I already walked through the door. Why would I walk through the door again?" So that was that was a problem. <laughs> um, you know, um, but but the 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 good thing about it is that he just was so natural. He just never, you know, once we became part of his life, we were part of his world and he just ignored us and we were able to get really intimate moments with him. Well, it's, it's beautiful.
1: It's absolutely beautiful. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, there were some sequences in the film. There were quite a few scenes from Walt Disney cartoons because that's how he's communicating and living his life, but there are also, some there's some original animation. Yes. At what prompted that concept and who did it, and it's be, it's be also very beautiful.
3: So the last chapter in Ron's book is uh, written by Owen. It's the land of the lost sidekicks. It's really Owen's autobiography about a little boy who, who at three years old, Owen got. Uh, struck with autism when he was three years old. He was aggressively autistic. So he was a typical, neurotypical child until around three and then autism hit him and he creates a story, a little boy who gets struck by autism at three and gets lo- um, sort of swept into the land of the lost sidekicks where the sidekicks, it's all the Disney sidekicks because the, the heroes have fulfilled their destiny and they are they're sort of on their own to sort of battle these monsters and demons, which correspond to the monsters that Owen was battling, like being bullied in school. So he created that story. So it was natural to bring that to life. And so I went to an amazing group uh, company called McGuff in Paris, Um, and they hand drew, Owen connects with the Disney classic film, so hand drawn animation. And they hand drew the animation for a year Creating, turning that, bringing that to life, and actually, um, I think they're here. Um, uh, Philippe and Matthew and Olivier from Paris over there are right, here. Let's do some hands up, right there. Where are they? There they are. There, hands up, guys. They're they're getting uh, an Annie Award tomorrow from the um an wow, animation, Congratulations. special award for their beautifully done, so.
1: really beautifully done. <laughs> It's nice, it's good to, you know, animation is one of the many, or one of the options available to us as documentary filmmakers to, to try to help tell a story when there aren't elements necessarily to, to do that, like stock footage. Um, and uh, Ezra, why didn't you interview OJ? I'm just kidding. Okay.
4: Well, do you just, see that look? I think I'm one of those serious documentarians. Yeah.
1: No, but but speak. I, I I think that stock footage is something obviously that was very important in your film and the work that you had to do in research and putting together the story the storytelling.
4: Um, how long did it take? Uh, the whole film took about two years, all in all. And um, but yeah, archival. The archival research was a um, fundamental part and I mean we had incredible, Caroline Waterlor, our producer who is here um, is an incredible archival Where's Caroline? I don't know, where. where there she is There she is, hand waving um, and she alongside of, of Nina Christick, who one of our other producers they did just an incredible job, I mean I can't speak to it's really a Herculean task that they to, to track down everything they did on a, it was on a macro and micro level of, you know, when you start off, you're sort of doing a deep dive of all-encompassing research that inter- that's oh, finding every interview that OJ has ever done, mm-hmm. um, looking into finding all, you know, digging into the archives of the LAPD to figure out what exists to tell that history. Um, but then as soon as you start um, doing interviews and start to sort of think there's always the specifics of these things you have to track down. Not to mention that the sources that you meet who have shot footage on their own and so it's stuff that you're gathering from, you know, traditional archival houses to networks to people who um, haven't given or shown their footage to anybody and it's developing a relationship with them and going through their footage and and figuring out a way to have them offer it to us. Hundreds of hours together with your interviews and the it's, archival footage. It's about 800 hours of
1: footage Why didn't you interview OJ? So we had all that footage. Oh good good answer <laughs> um, Let's take a look at a scene from OJ made in America and,
4: and I think this is a, a Scene that is I think all archival great um, from let so, Let's
1: take a look There's some great editing in that piece. Uh, Do you guys want to, like, anyone sort of jump in and talk about the importance of an editor in the process of documentary filmmaking? Just to give a little shout-out to the editors who are in the audience.
2: (laughs) Well, they don't do anything.
3: (laughs) Um, My editor's here. David Teague, who's a brilliant genius. And David had... Where's David? David... David, take a back. David's
1: high. Oh, back row. He's
3: way in the back. Why would an editor sit in the back row? (laughs) Yeah, just like an editor. (laughs) Um, You know, David had a very uh, difficult task of, you know, sort of three different types of animation, Um, you know, Disney clips, uh, the land of the lost sidekicks animation. We had the simple black and white uh, line drawing animation, verite footage. Um, and um, home movies, um, and he had to sort of weave all these layers together seamlessly and make and create a story, and, and that's the beauty of someone, of, a, of an editor, that, you know, they're your writers, they're your co-writers, they're your, th- to me, they're, they are hand-in-hand hand with you, um, and that's where we create these films, in the edit room. So, um, David, you're amazing. <laughs> and all editors, sorry. I just love my editor. So.
2: My,
5: my guy learned Kazakh. <laughs> pretty much yeah he, um he got so good because we had it took us like nine. it took him nine months to edit because again it was my first film so I just gave him like a a dog's dinner of rushes um, I did half the sound myself on one of those little zooms and none of it was sunk um, well, so nine months is uh, a' yeah. pretty quick.
1: What do you think <laughs> for what? Yeah, I mean, anyway, like he didn't you have eight hundred
5: hours to go through, but um, he did a great job, I, and he's very musical as well. So he sort of picked up on the cadence and um, of the language to the extent where he was pretty damn. Because we were always waiting for translations from Kazakhstan to the point where he he would get the syntax down and he knew where to cut. Well, so editing impressive. is It's
1: a musical type of ex-
5: yeah thing, anyway, isn't it? Yeah, I, certainly, yeah. I mean, I'll say, I mean,
4: sorry, Josh. Um, in addition, I mean, Maya Muma, who is one of, we had three incredible editors. Maya Muma cut that scene, um, Brett Granado, and Ben Sazanski. And so I think, I mean, they were all individually incredible editors, but to be able to work simultaneously um, on three different parts of the film and to maintain a coherence, you know, alongside the idea that you did have that much footage. Um, was an amazing feat that they you know managed to pull off I mean they I mean yes this film could not have been done without the most incredibly talented editors that we had
2: yeah. yeah I mean I'll, I'll just totally lovely, I'll add to the uh, to the praises I mean our editor Eli Dupre, is just a total genius and it was uh, an unbelievable pleasure working with him on this we had about 400 hours of footage um, and he actually was here in LA and uh, Elise and I are in New York so we did the whole edit uh, remotely uh, through through Skype and other things. So that was an interesting challenge. But the what Eli brought, uh, I mean, he brought a lot, so many things to the project, but the one thing that we really knew right away he was the right editor to work with was really a, a sense of tone and pacing and humor. Yeah, the timing um, in it is fantastic. Yeah, is and, and it's, a, it's a, he, you know, <laughs> so much credit to him for, for figuring out that tone, which at the time, you know, we, we really wanted to figure out how to include the humor of it all. It's gotten a lot less funny um, in uh, you know recent months, uh, but uh, it, it definitely is a big part of the film. How long did it take? You said you had about 400 hours of footage. What was the post-production? Period? So with Eli, we were editing for about nine
1: months. Okay. That seems pretty quick to me as well, considering all the footage you had to work with. <laughs> exactly, right? Yeah. Like
3: over a year. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well,
2: we didn't have as much money.
3: <laughs> so
2: Josh, you work with a co-director, Yes. how does that, how does that work? Yeah, so, so Elise Steinberg, uh, my brilliant co-director who was planning to be here and is really sorry that she couldn't actually end up making it, um, but she and I were um, creatively and, and uh, we, we co-directed and co-produced uh, shoulder to shoulder the whole way through. So I ended up doing um, almost all of the shooting just because there really wasn't room for more than one person in, in that context. Uh, in that environment, but um, she and I were talking constantly and, and strategizing about what we were getting and how to put it all together. Arguing, <laughs> arguing all the time. Yeah, that, that's that's part it leads of leads to I mean, creative results. It's good. Yeah, I mean, what well, we we like to say that we we fight well, which is part of why we enjoy working together.
1: Good. Well, let's take a look at uh, a scene from. We, it needs no setup. <laughs> Let's just jump in and take it. Uh, take a look at a scene from Wiener. Uh, uh, Josh Otto was saying earlier, uh, he said your film has just perfect pacing in the editing for the humor, and uh, he's right. It's an absolute pleasure to watch. It's uh, it's funny and also heartbreaking, and it's an interesting commentary on society, and it's everything. I'm sure you uh, you. Hoped it would be, and maybe even more. Thank you. So, congratulations. Uh, what do you when you go into a film like that with somebody like Anthony Weiner? Does he have any approval over what? <laughs> oh, you're smiling. Uh, there's there's a story there.
2: Well, I mean, the answer is no. I mean, he he agreed you know, to obviously be in the film and, you know, as I mentioned before, you know, one of the ground rules was that if ever he wanted me to turn off the camera or leave the room or not be in the room, you know, we would respect those boundaries. But, you know, otherwise, um, you know, he and everyone understood uh, that they were in the movie. He was doing things where I thought, how, why
1: is he doing this in front of a camera? Does he, does he know? Does he remember Josh is in the room (laughs) with the camera? So, I mean, he must have did you give him an opportunity to watch the film first and give any comments about cutting things out? Or?
2: Well, we actually did offer to show him the film before we finished it. Um, it was towards the end of the editing process, and we offered to screen it for him uh, before we premiered at Sundance, and he refused to see it. He actually didn't want to see it. Really? And so, um, you know, he actually said no a couple of times, and we. Um, we were a little bit surprised, but we, you know, respected that choice. What about Huma Abedin, his same, wife? Same. She didn't want to see it either. No. I mean, it, it wow. was. something He sort of chose to keep his distance from the film um, as it, you know, as it was released um, for for whatever reasons. Have you spoken to him since he's seen it? No. I, I mean, he has said. I mean, I, I don't know if he's seen it. He actually has claimed recently to still not have seen it. Um, which I don't know if that's exactly true. Um, but, uh, but we haven't been in touch much since he decided to sort of distance himself from the from the film. You think he's preoccupied? Yeah, he's, he's had some it? other things to worry about. Yeah.
1: yeah, I'm curious. It's always interesting when the subject of the film sits down with you and watches the movie. I mean, Roger, for you, when you showed Owen and his father and his family the film... What kind of feedback did you get?
3: Um, so Ron and Owen watched the film in our office together, um, and they were alone in the room. I was not in the room. I was peeking through the keyhole, but I wasn't in, actually in the room. You were um, peeking through the keyhole. Uh, yeah, I was. I was. Yeah, of course. And Very um, cinematic uh, explanation. They, of they may even be here. Um, and um, uh, it was. A, it was. A, I was a wreck. You know, because if Owen didn't like the film, we're going to have a problem. Um, But Owen came running out of the room and he hugged me, uncharacteristic. And it was so beautiful. And he said, I love it. And we were, I was in tears and it was a very emotional moment. Um, Cornelia and Walt did not see the film till in an audience at the premiere at Sundance. And they chose, that was their choice, to see it with an audience. Imagine the emotional... How emotional they were, and they had to go up and do q and A. Q&A. That's
1: Owen's mother. Owen's and mother brother. and
3: his brother. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah. Yeah. And um, Otto, if I could pronounce the young girl's name. Marshall Thank you. Um, what kind of response did you get when you showed her the film?
5: Um, we um, they they'd seen parts of it. You know, I'd shown them little clips when I would go back and forth on my iPad. Um, But they hadn't seen the finished article. They saw it at Sundance in the theater. And um, it was very nerve-wracking, you know, (laughs) because they're the the most important audience, really, in a lot of ways. And they loved it, which was great. (laughs) Thank goodness. Um, Yeah, and there were were a lot of tears. And... um, I was very happy, but it's funny. We, you know, months went past. We went lucky enough to go to lots of different festivals, and then we went to uh, a festival in Dubai, and um, and she got such a standing ovation afterwards, and everybody turned to her. You know, we we, had, we were lucky enough to get a lot of standing ovation, but th- this one, I don't know what happened, but. Um, she cried, I've never seen her cry, ever. And um, and she cried. And then um, I dedicated the film to her grandfather. He passed away between Sundance and, and Telluride and we, we showed the film. You know, the first time they kind of loved it and it was all exciting. And then the second time we played it outside at Telluride and um, it was the first time that I guess that her father had seen his father, you know, all big and his voice really loud, and his mannerisms, and then at the end, he gave me, I mean, he's a strong bloke, I mean, he's, he's really tough, and he gave me this massive bear hug, nearly broke my spine, but he, um, and he just said, you know, he doesn't speak much, English, he doesn't speak English, but, you know, he said, thank you, thank you, thank you, in my ear, I knew exactly what he was, what he was, what he was saying thank you for, and it was, uh, that was really good, you know, he, it's nice to, me audiences who like it, but when you when your subjects really like it, it's it's great. And I have
1: read that. Uh, oh, I hope it's I hope this is true, but that the distributor is actually contributing. Yeah, no, like, I am. Oh, uh, you are. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's there the, for her uh, education. Yeah, that's right. We
5: um after we took off at Sundance and Sony Pictures Classics came in with a, a good wedge of money. Um, it just seemed right to make them profit participants. so um, we set up a fund for her education. She wants to be a doctor, she wants to be a surgeon. So now she can, wow. great. Now she can That's study wherever she wants in the That's world, she can go to college.
1: Yeah Which is nice. Ezra, I, I won't ask you what O.J thought of the movie.
2: <laughs>
1: you can ask. No, right? You're, okay. I have no idea. <laughs> um, but we were talking about, uh, well, you know what? One thing I want to come back to with you, because it, speaking of things I've read, um, that you were talking about doing a seven and a half hour movie and the process of doing it. And I'm asking this because of someone who's in the audience today who is a first filmma- first-time feature filmmaker who's made a lot of short films, and who uh, I'm supporting the featured documentary that he wants to make, and everyone's saying that is such a great concept. You've got to do it as a series. That's got to be six hours. It's got to be eight hours. You st- you said in one of your interviews you went to a really dark place in trying to get. Is that true? Is that what you said, Ezra?
4: Talking to Josh. You. Me. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know that I went to any darker place than anyone on the stage in trying to make a film. I mean, it was, it was a lot of hard work, um, and it, and certainly from a subject matter standpoint, um, it's, there are a lot of dark themes, yeah. and so spending a couple years, yeah. you know, on the one hand it's a story that, you know, culminates in a brutal murder, um, when we're talking about the protagonist, and in the twin narrative you're talking about this awful history. Um, of people who have been brutalized by the police department in this city. You're talking about the, you know, the trauma that black people as a whole have suffered in this country. I mean, it was not a, you know, it's not a comedy. And so in that way, spending that much time with this material, it, you know, it does weigh on you. And then, sure, just the, the arduous task of, of trying to figure out a way to maintain... The narrative thrust over the course of almost eight hours and in, in trying to make a movie like that, yeah, it was it was just hard. That's it. I don't know about dark, hard.
1: It was your quote, <laughs> but, uh, but what was the
4: quote? Uh,
1: I, I don't know. on Wikipedia, so it was probably wrong.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Josh didn't go to a dark place. Josh had a good time the whole time. It was oh yeah. Pure pure joy. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you guys know Raul? Yeah. Peck? I'm sure you've uh, met yeah. him.
4: Lovely, lovely man.
1: Well, what a talented filmmaker. Raoul Peck is the director who wasn't able to be here tonight. He made a film called I Am Not Your Negro. And I'm sure I speak for everyone on the stage when I say I rec- highly recommend the film. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. It's created from some of the basic tools we use in documentary filmmaking, um, archival footage, scripted narration, although in this case, it's excerpts from a manuscript by James Baldwin. Uh, It shows that you can artfully arrange music, images, and words to create something truly powerful and enlightening, and I I really, I wish he had been able to be here tonight because I think he would have really been able to add a lot to the discussion. But we don't have him, but we do have a clip from his film, so let's take a look at a clip from I Am Not Your Negro. It's a powerful, power, very powerful film. Um, yeah. Also, just such a good use of archival footage and the way that editors, the director, everybody, put, they put it together is, is, uh, is tremendous. Made me think Ezra, Boy, it's coming. I'm, it's getting to be. I don't want to bring it down, but I, I'm very curious about your uh, y- your decision to use some of the graphic images in the O.J. documentary, particularly the murder scene photographs of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman. Um, is that a is that a, was that a difficult decision for you?
4: Um, yes and no. I mean, yes in terms of the sense of a. Uh, you know, took um, it very seriously in terms of how, you know, what those photos show and that essentially no one had ever seen them. Um, and I understood the impact it would have certainly on, on certain people who knew the victims most prominently. But no in the sense that, you know, I think when I was telling this story, when you, when you look back and, you, and what we were trying to do in the film and show what the trial became, And it became about all these things um, and everything but the victims and everything about those brutal murders. And so when I saw those crime scene photos, I was given a presentation by Bill Hodgman, who is the deputy DA who's in the film. And it was maybe over a year in the process of me working on the film, at which point I had become relatively desensitized to a lot of the story. And when I saw those photos, I was shocked into a place. And what went through me emotionally made me realize immediately um, how impactful and how necessary they were for an audience to understand um, what we weren't focusing on during that nine-month trial. And and that was imperative for me to show them. That was why.
1: And I want to say, I think it had exactly the impact that you wanted it to. It worked exactly that way for me, and it, it's, uh, it's it's horrifying, and it but yet it communicates something so essential to the story. So Thank congratulations you. to you, you for doing that, and for the way you put the whole film together. Thank you. Um, okay, something funny. Anyone have a good joke? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you really. Bother. You do. I do not have. A- well, let's talk a little bit more about Life Animated then, Roger, since you didn't want to speak very much and uh, since you haven't had... <laughs> I say that? Um, what about you, uh, decisions about using things in the film, footage of Owen, that you think, you know, speaking about the decision whether or not to use certain photographs and how the family might feel about it. Are there times when you're in editing where you're thinking, maybe this is... It's interesting, but it's not something Owen would want to see or the family would want to see. I mean there's got to be a fine line about deciding I mean you're, you're making a movie after all, not an expose. So w- was that ever difficult for you?
3: Yeah, um, there are many times. Um, you know we had we had finished we had sort of was at rough cut stage when um, Owen um, had a um, devastating breakup. With his um, girlfriend, and um, sorry, spoiler alert. And um, uh, I didn't know whether to continue filming that because Owen was in such incredible pain, and he expresses it, you know. And and the whole family was in incredible pain. Um, but Ron said to me, um, "This is um, we could, we we wanted to do this because we wanted to." We had to tell the truth of what we went through and are going through as a, as a family, and that's why he wrote the book, and that's why they agreed to be in the documentary. And he's like, "Keep filming." So there were many. It was a it was a tough time to uh to to sort of you know be a sort of fly on the wall, um in the room, when um when Owen is struggling. Uh, did you have the emotion that we feel when we watch the film? While you were, fil- did you cry? Um, I, cr- you know, I cried with Owen because, you know, well, during that breakup was one of the, one of the few times that Owen sort of stopped, um, sort of pacing around and sat down, and said, "Why is the world so cruel? Why can't people love each other? Why can't?" Why does this have to happen to me? You know, he expresses, he's he doesn't have the filter that we all have. It's th- that's a wonderful thing about Owen. We all we all have this filter that, you know, we you know protect ourselves from each other. We don't express, you know, what we're really thinking or feeling because we're being protective of ourselves. But Owen is just out there emotionally, and that's the beauty of it. And he was just so raw, and he's like, Am I gonna be alone forever? Is anyone ever gonna love me again? And he it was so painful to sit sit there and have that conversation with him just kind of in just the two of us in the room. And I, and at that point, yeah, I did cry.
1: All five of these films are extraordinary. And I highly, highly, highly recommend them to everyone in this room. If there are any of these that you haven't seen yet to seek them out and uh, they will literally change your life. So thank you to you guys for making these films. Congratulations to you for your nomination for the DGA Documentary Award. We'll see you next year.
0: Thanks, everyone. Congrats, guys. We hope you enjoyed listening to this exclusive discussion. You can watch the full video of the Documentary Symposium and of our Meet the Nominees Feature Film Symposium on our website at dga.org events. Check out past episodes of The Director's Cut by subscribing on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, if you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share, and leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks for listening, and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.